All right, hey, my name is Ben, one of the pastors. Today we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. No, no shame, no judgments if you have to go to the table of contents on this one. Nehemiah, it's in the Old Testament, it's a history book. And it tells a pretty wild and dramatic history. And it tells a history that I think, by God's grace, is going to be very timely for where we are as Hope Church. It's going to be timely in a lot of different reasons. Uh, but really, I, I think it's going to be timely because we've always had a vision that I think we need to keep pushing forward. At Hope Church, we have always said that we exist to make disciples and plant churches. When we started Hope Church, when it was just a, a twinkle in the eye of the little group of people that were going to try and make this church and see God do big things through it, we said, we want to make disciples and plant churches. And at the time, you know, it seemed kind of crazy because a church didn't exist yet. But now, I think it's still God's plan for us. We had this idea that if we ever got to 150 people, then we'd be ready to send some people out and maybe plant a church. We got to 150 people, and we were like, this is way too few people. This is not this is a terrible idea. we got to wait. So let's, let's say 200. When we get to 200 people, then we're going to start looking at multiplying out. Well, we got to 200. Pre-COVID, we were well above 200 regularly. So we're like, okay, here we go. And we start kind of getting ready, and then, you know, covid and it just kind of messed with momentum and messed with a lot of people's kind of rhythm and where they're at. And so, you know, we start kind of collecting people back and getting people back together. And honestly, there's a lot of new people that showed up after COVID. Okay, who are you? Who are we? How does that all work? And then now, okay, what are we going to do? We went through and we did a series we called uh, Sacred Calling, Sacred Work. Because I want you to think about your work. I want you to think about what you're doing. Are you just here to be served? I mean, Josh is totally right. On a Sunday morning, you are here to have people minister their gifts to you so that you have a, a realignment, so that you're led in worship. Okay. But is that the sum total of your relationship with God? Is it a Sunday morning experience where other people serve you? Well, no. That was the point we tried to make with the last series, but it's a point that's made on just about every page of Scripture. God called people right at the very beginning before the fall. He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. You get into the New Testament, you see Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, speaking to his apostles and saying, Go and make disciples. That's a be fruitful and multiply at a spiritual level, to go and see lots and lots and lots of sons and daughters in the faith multiplying and spreading all over the world, and that's what happened. That same idea, that same mandate is on just about every page of Scripture. It is where God is working. You know, we talk about uh, experiencing God, the, the content that our community groups are going through. That's intentional as well. We want you to be asking the question. What is the role of a Christian? Blackaby makes the point really well. See where God's working and join him. And as you join him, you're joining him in that relationship that he has, that he wants you to be with him in the work that he's doing. Your relationship doesn't end if you stop working, but, but that's the connection. That's the point. And so to get to 
kind of that next step, that next kind of building block as we move towards the kind of things that I hope God will do with us and through us, that he bless us enough to bear fruit in this way, I, I want to take you to kind of a frightening scene. So let's go to Nehemiah chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of the scripture, please don't panic. We'll have those words, and we'd love to give you a copy of the Bible on your way out. But if you have one, look with me at Nehemiah chapter 4, where it says, We're enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears and the shields and the bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He was in the king's palace, in his presence, eating from his table, a close advisor and trusted man of the king, of the world. And when we find him in Nehemiah, he's standing on a dusty mound of dirt, trying to rebuild a broken wall with blood and dust everywhere. You can be tempted to say, what happened? <laughs> well, what I'm going to hopefully invite you to say is, well, how do I do that too? All right, let's get there. What's going on in Nehemiah? Well, 586 BC, the exiles of Jerusalem are taken to Babylon. So the story of the Old Testament, very, very briefly, God gets a people in that people. He, he Gives them all kinds of stuff that teaches them about who he is. And, and then through them, he's supposed to bless the whole of the world. And he does. There's this nation, the people of Israel. And he builds them up into this great people. But because of their constant disobedience and idolatry, eventually God allows destruction. And so that kingdom splits. And you have a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom gets taken over by the Assyrians. Boom, just eaten up. And all that's left is the southern kingdom. Well, while they did have some kings that were more faithful, in general, they too. They disobeyed God. Not just stub your toe and curse, disobey. Like, go after idols and sacrifice their children to those idols, disobey. They just left God. They were no longer God's people. So Ezekiel has the vision of God's glory leaving the temple. The, the Babylonians come from the east and home, eat up this little southern kingdom. 586, now there are several waves of exiles that get sent off to Babylon, but we can say 586 is a good date. 539, Cyrus of Persia overthrows Babylon. So the Persians beat the Babylonians, and now you've got a Persian king over everything. Then in 538, he frees the Jews to, to return to Judah and Jerusalem. They start working on their temple. In about 516 B.C., they rebuild the temple. Solomon had this glorious temple that got allowed to be taken apart by Ju Judah's enemies. And now, by his faithfulness, he allows the people to come back and build. But while they are rejoicing over the new temple, there's also the sound of weeping because the new temple is so much less glorious than the old, built with all the wealth of David and Solomon. And yet, go another 70 years later to 444, 445 B.C., and this guy, Nehemiah, standing in the king's palace, hears a report that the walls around Jerusalem still haven't been rebuilt that the grand sort of 
re-love, rebuilding, rebirth of God's people in his place is not continuing. Yeah, they got a temple, but they haven't even put walls around the city. And you're saying to yourself, well, who cares? There's not really walls around Salt Lake. I mean, kind of. You know, there's the mountains. But no, it's not a big deal for us to try and go wall in Salt Lake and put, you know, guards at the walls or whatever. But in ancient times, it was. It wasn't really even a city until you had walls. This guy, Tim Keller's big city guy and big theology of the city guy, he's quoting other people, but he says, the most common Hebrew word for city is ur. I don't know what you're supposed to do with that, but that's the word in the Hebrew. Oh, okay, ur, take my word for it. And that word meant that any human settlement surrounded uh, meant any human settlement surrounded by some fortification or wall. That that was the definition of a city. And yeah, if you're going to have something, you got to be able to like have it, like keep it. In ancient times, the only way to do that was to create some sort of protection around an area. Seventy years after they've rebuilt the temple, and this guy finds out that they they still haven't even put a wall around the city, he begins to weep, obviously. And we zoom back and we see that he has not only gotten permission to come and try and pursue that work and build that protection around the people, but he's doing it in a contested way, he's doing it in a dirty way, and he's doing it with a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. So how do we get here? Or how does this guy not only get there, but, but continue and work so much so that they actually do rebuild the wall? In 52 days. It's not even crazy that he left the king's palace and came, as crazy as that is. It's crazy that it worked. It's crazy to do some of the stuff that we're talking about and thinking about. It's even crazier to think it, it might work. So let's think about how and let's think about why. We talk about a shovel and you get that. We talked about sacred work. We talked about trying to build the kingdom and what that looks like in your job and in your life with different opportunities and different giftings that God's given you. But what about this sword thing? Yeah, with swords. See, there are enemies of the work of God. In the book of Nehemiah, and we'll work our way through this book, but in the book of Nehemiah, there are enemies who slander the people of God. It says in chapter 2, verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, uh, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Gershom and uh, the Arab heard of what was happening, the attempt to rebuild the wall, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So the nations that were around Jerusalem obviously don't want Jerusalem to rebuild this wall and gain any kind of strength and protection. They really like having this little plum that they can pluck from whenever they choose. And they slander the work. It worked before. It worked with Ezra. They said, you are trying to rebuild some sort of rebellious community against the Persians. And then they would write a letter, and then that would have the Persians then come and stop the work. And so they thought this slander would work. Yeah, it seems small, but it's actually pretty effective. I went yesterday to help David. We were moving some couches, and we're putting them up into this truck. And if you ever get a U-Haul, you know you can pull out the big uh, ramp from the back of it, and if you pull it all the way out, then you can lift it up just a little bit and kind of hook it in so that the base of the truck and that ramp meet perfectly. 
Now, when I pulled out the ramp and laid it down, the last however long I needed to be able to do that little connection point was where an irrigation pipe was, and I didn't want to mess up the irrigation pipe. So I just said to myself, well, you're not an idiot. You just have to remember that there's a little two-inch metal lip at the top of the ramp so that as you carry stuff into the truck, you're just going to have to step over that. That's not a big deal. Again, you're not an idiot. Well, we move piece number one, piece number two. As we're moving piece number three, wouldn't you know it? As we're walking, Rachel and I, we really love these fail videos where somebody just disappears. So like a baby's doing something silly and funny, and then all of a sudden they just go behind the couch or like just disappear behind the bed or whatever. That's what happened. David was talking to me, or I'm talking to him, more likely. I don't stop. So I'm, you know, jabbering about God knows. And then as I, whoo, just fall and just disappear. It's just this little two inches of metal. And now fortunately, I landed on some padding. Everybody's okay. But something so small can set off quite a blaze, James tells us. Seems like such a small accusation. And yet, it had already stopped the work once, and it, it had the capability to stop the work again. Slander. Be careful, little children, what you hear. Be careful, little children, what you speak. So it seems like a small thing, but as Nehemiah will show us, it can be overcome. It can hurt, but it can be overcome. The work can continue. The enemies came with taunts. It says in the first part of Nehemiah 4, now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the, many, uh, and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the ones burned with fire at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. you got to add voices sometimes to help you understand what's happening. They're just taunting them. Can I tell you that taunts work? I'm going to play basketball in high school. I was a sophomore. If you're a sophomore, you don't get to pick the jersey. You just get what's left after everybody else has picked their jerseys. So we're playing basketball, and I got to play. Sophomore playing on the varsity team. I'm very excited. I'm very impressed with myself and with my uniform. Unfortunately, if you're the last pick, you get the uniform that's like left from the 80s, and it was very John Stockton. Do you know about basketball uniforms? I've noticed that they're starting to get like tighter again, but for a long time, that was not cool. For a long time, you wanted to have big, baggy, and one shorts. But at the time when we were playing, that being the cool thing, that was obviously not what was left when it was my turn to pick a jersey. So my shorts were painted on. And you try and sag them how well you can and like kind of run without them falling down, but it just, you know, it's not going to work. And as we were playing, the other team's fans started to cheer. Who wears short shorts? 45 wears short shorts. Now, that's funny, objectively. I laughed when it happened. But on the inside, can I also tell you, not so much laughing? Because they're uh, taunting me. They're taking something I'm excited about, and they're making me feel shame over it. That's what a taunt can do. Now, if it's sports, who cares? But what if it's something holy that God like, loves and commands you to do? 
And you leave here, like Josh was saying, you leave here and your gaze sort of turns to all these other groups and all this other stuff out there and they taunt what God calls holy. So you feel ashamed of purity. You feel ashamed of multiplication, of even the concept that you might have something that's right that the rest of the world needs. Man, taunts work. And the enemy throws him out. And yet, this Nehemiah guy pushed through. How? Well, we'll see. And yet, it's not just with words that the enemy comes against us. He comes against us with swords. That sword that they're holding is real. It says in Nehemiah 4, verse 10 and 11 again, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Do you think that is just poetic license that the scripture describes the enemy as a lion or as a dragon? He has teeth. And when our Lord said that he comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy? Well, those red letters are true. You know, I wasn't here last week. I was in a church in Alabama where they were having this big missions conference. We're trying to gather friends and gather support to multiply in Utah. While I was there, I made friends with some people that were in northeast India. And there, where they were, man, things were hard. They were getting physical abuse for being Christians. And what was crazy was that. What was crazier was the way they talked about it. They talked about it like it's just a normal problem and here's some best practices for how you deal with it. Oh, yeah, the government takes your business? Yeah, so here's what you do. Somebody comes in and they beat you and your spouse with rods? Yeah, okay, here's what happens after that. Because it just happens. You know, if you, you think about these things that you want to go and do, if they're opposed, you still want to do them. Nehemiah did. And it worked. Man, there's enemies. And there's friends. <laughs> and there's friends who don't get it. You know, the, the Nehemiah's friend, you know, maybe we put quotes around that, but was the emperor, was Artaxerxes. And he didn't get it. The people who were around Jerusalem, the, the nobles that were in Jerusalem, they didn't want to get dirty. It says in Nehemiah 3.5, And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Hmm. There are people who, who fear, people who love you, who are going to tell you not to do crazy stuff. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them, who lived around the place in Jerusalem, came from all directions and said to us ten times, stop, you must return to us. This is crazy. It's, this is not safe. When you put forward the idea of what you think God is calling you to do, and it's crazy... You're going to have people around you saying, no, 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 no. I love you too much to do that. That's crazy. That's not safe. 
okay, yeah. Ten times they said it to Nehemiah. But the people kept going, and in 52 days, against all odds, walls. So, how do we keep going? How do we do what Nehemiah did? How do we get excited about the multiplication strategy that I think God is calling us to? Now, it's not a question about if, it's a question about what. But what does this look like? How do we do this? It says in verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. What's the response? You look, you remember, you look to the Lord who is great and awesome. You remember that you're not doing this alone. (laughs) If God's plan of multiplication is on every page of Scripture, God's power for that, His presence with you, is on every page of Scripture. It's constant. If you take any big story, you take any little story from Scripture and bring it to me, we'll find it. God planned on us depending on Him to go about this work. It's His work. That's, again, why experiencing God is so helpful, because it makes the emphasis time and again, this isn't about you. Oh, your pride is going to steal all your motivation, and your pride is going to instill all kinds of fears and anxiety. But if you'll just stop for a second and look to the Lord who provides... I don't know that there's a bigger story in Scripture than than God taking the people of Israel out of Egypt. How did he do that? Well, Moses. No, not Moses. Plagues. Bold words. Miracles. God did it with his strong right hand. And then he led the people of Israel through the wilderness, providing for them. Providing for them in even their rebellion. It says that God rained down manna from heaven. It was these little crackers, kind of like bread, that would come down from heaven and they would gather it. And it just rained down every day. Think about that for a second. It rained down every day. He had an intense set of rules about how they were to go about it. They were supposed to gather that day's bread for that day. If you tried to get enough for two days, let's just do our gathering today and tomorrow we can take off. Then when you woke up in the morning, what was left for that next day would have been rotten and eaten by worms. So you throw it out, you learn your lesson. That God wants to feed you daily. Unless it's the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, He does want you to gather for two days. And then you look at your jar the next morning expecting it to be full of worms because that's what happened the last time. And it's not. Miraculously. It's not. Why? Because God wanted to preach to those people daily, daily, that he would provide. You know, I tell you, hey, we're going to multiply. And you're like, I can't do that. I'm like, duh. The thought that you could do it or that it would be up to you to do it. That's all just pride. He provides. You go through and you have the whole life of Moses. Oh my gosh, story after story. And then you transition to Joshua. You think maybe this is just a Moses thing. No! It says in Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. Why? Beautiful commands. Why? How? 
For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When Jesus sent out the disciples, Sermon on the Mount, great. Whole ministry together, great. He goes to a cross and dies, totally despairing, and then he rises from the grave. Great. And then he tells them, great commission, he tells them to go and make disciples. But how does he say to go about it? And surely I am with you always. He starts by talking about his own authority. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Command, go make disciples. And then encouragement. For surely I'm with you always. Even to the very end of the age. Why does he say that? It's a little redundant. You say always, always includes the end of the age. Well, because if you ever come to the end of an age, you're going to worry if he's still with you. So he said it again, just to be nice. He sends the disciples, but he doesn't send them really. He says, okay, but I need you to wait until the helper comes, the spirit comes. And that's what happens. The Holy Spirit in Acts 2 baptizes, bathes the disciples, the apostles in himself, in the Holy Spirit, that God's presence comes and he, he empowers them. And it's like a flame of fire that comes on them. He doesn't empower them to sit still. He empowers them to great work. And they go out and they begin to proclaim the excellencies of God as seen through his redemptive purpose in Jesus. And as they're speaking, everybody there, it was a festival, so people are from all over coming to this one city. And as they're speaking, people from all over hear at the same time in their own heart language the word of God. And Peter has to stand up and defend them because they start to jump, kind of nudge each other and say, boy, they got into the wine a little early today, huh? Must have been good wine in ancient times if it gave you like the power of tongues. I don't know how they made that connection, but they just decided, these guys, man, this is stuff, the new wine must have gotten to their head. They're, they're acting crazy. And Peter gets up to defend them and he begins by saying, they're not drunk as you suppose. It's too early for that. That's very funny. You're allowed to laugh at that. It's a very good joke. It's one of the first Christian sermons outside of Christ, and he starts with a joke. No, they're not godly. No, they're not Jesus' apostles. It's just too early. They're not drunk. And then he goes on to describe what's happening. He tells them that the Holy Spirit has cloaked them. And he does it by quoting from Joel, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, quoting from Joel, says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Talking about cloaking us with power, having the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the judgment that is to come. Oh my gosh. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You don't have to be Nehemiah to be saved. You don't have to be the Apostle Paul or Moses or Joshua to be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord, so Jesus preached in John 1, to all who did receive him, this is John preaching on Jesus' behalf, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children 
of God. <laughs> He's not just trying to hire you. He's trying to adopt you. Why do you go from the king's palace to the wasted walls of Jerusalem? Because that's where he is. Go, and I'll be with you. That's where he is. Experiencing God. Find where God is and join him. It's not a salvation statement. It's a sanctification statement. There's an old song, and it's, it's probably an older saying. But a man singing to his lady. And he says, home is wherever there is you. Rachel and I say that all the time. How do you know this is home? Because that's where you are, baby. How do you know that this is where God wants you? That's where, that's where he is. He wants you with him on this work that he's called you to. That's why he says it in the Great Commission. That's why he says it on every page of Scripture. That's why he says it in Acts chapter 2. That's why he says it in Joel. That's why he says it through the whole people of Israel. That's why he says it this morning to you. Oh, if you don't know the Lord, receive him. Man, if, if, if you're not ready to do with the Lord, okay. But let's get ready. Let's learn from Nehemiah. Let's see what God has called his people to do. I'm sorry, but we're not home yet. And yet, even with all of this fear, we're going to look to God and remember our great and awesome king. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I, I don't intend to scare people. I want us to be excited about what you're doing and what you have done and what you've commanded us to do and what you've called us to do and how, Father, you've said, promised that, you'll be with us in all of that doing. So I pray that as we go through this series, Father, as we think together about your word, that you would empower your people for what you've called us to. Father, we love you and we trust you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.